Have you ever known a secret that was so good you couldn't keep silent? I mean, have you ever been told anything that is so awesome that there, there's no way that you can be quiet about? You've got to tell somebody. Have you ever been told a secret that you just can't wait to tell to someone else? This is the feeling that I have this morning. For I could not wait to ask you to draw your sword, take your Bible, and turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Embedded in those few verses, you will discover the sacred secret. It is a mystery that God has made known, and it is awesome. It is a sacred secret that is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. I invite you to take your Bible, find that place of Scripture, and once you have, to stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Colossians chapter 1, I want to begin at verse 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And I lift up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed for the saints to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. It is the Apostle Paul who pens this letter while he is in prison. The opening line catches us off guard. I rejoice in suffering. Does that surprise anybody else in the crowd? For Paul to write, I rejoice in suffering. For most of us, rejoicing and suffering are polar opposites. We rejoice over success. We grieve over suffering. Yet here, Paul tells us that we are to rejoice in suffering. This is not the only time that you find this instruction in the New Testament. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope never fails. We like the end of that verse, don't we? Hope never fails. We love that, but it starts with suffering. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces uh, character, and character produces hope, and hope never fails. James, the brother of our Lord, said, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Are you kidding me? James, the little brother of Jesus, had the audacity to say, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. 
In Acts chapter 5, it is Dr. Luke who tells us that when those few disciples left their interrogation by the hands of the Sanhedrin, they left rejoicing, for they were counted among those who suffered for the name. They rejoiced because they were suffering. Throughout the New Testament, we are called and commissioned to rejoice in suffering. You and I have to have a robust theology of suffering. Some of the most popular questions that people ask, both inside the church and outside the church, are questions like these. Why do people suffer? Why is there so much suffering? Why is there evil in this world? And you and I have to have a robust understanding, a robust theology of suffering. The simple answer is this. uh, People suffer. You suffer. I suffer simply because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where everyone and everything is touched and tainted by sin. Suffering happens. Evil happens because sinful people do sinful things to other sinful people. That's why we suffer. That's why there's so much evil, because we are sinful, and sinful people do sinful things to other sinful people. The Bible says all of us have sinned, and we continue to fall short of the glory of God. So we are completely and utterly sinful. The Scripture says that it rains on the just and the unjust, which means that there is suffering, not just on the unjust, but also on the just, not just on the reprobate, but also on the righteous ones. We suffer because we navigate this world, and it is a fallen world. I've been told what you've been told. There are two inevitabilities of life, death and taxes. This morning, I want to suggest a third inevitability, and it's suffering. It's never a question of will you suffer. The question is always how will you respond to the suffering. Suffering is part and parcel with our human condition. We all know what it is to suffer. We suffer physically, we suffer emotionally, we suffer hurts and hang-ups, we suffer from heartache and headache, we suffer from disappointment and disaster, we suffer because we're overlooked uh, by the promotion, we are overlooked and, and let go from the job, we suffer because we don't make the basketball team, we suffer because of disappointment in our existence and in our life, we suffer, we know what it is. To know the pain of standing at the grave of a loved one. We know how it is to suffer. So it's never a question of will you suffer. The question is always how you respond to the suffering. We have to have a good understanding, a great theology of suffering. Because we live in a fallen world. Everybody suffers. But this suffering does not escape a compassionate God that ours is a God who uses suffering as a tool and he wields it well. He uses the suffering to remove the imperfections. He he uses the suffering to enable you to persevere to the end. He uses the suffering to galvanize within you his character. He uses the suffering to point you to the hope that never fails. It's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God uses the suffering. He uses the agony. He uses the disappointment. He uses the pain for your good and for his glory. Our God does not waste suffering. He uses it as a tool to fashion us more in the image of Christ. I remember as a boy, there were times when my legs would just ache. 
And I would go to my mom and I would say, Mom, my legs are aching. There's so much pain. My legs, they're just aching. And she would look at me and she would say, that's good. I'd say, Mom, it's easy for you to say they're not your legs. My legs are aching. How can you say that it's good? And she says, those are called growing pains. And God is using that to make you taller and to make you stronger. You do realize, friend, that there is no growth outside of pain. There is no growth outside of pain. Whether it's a simple illustration of growing pains in the legs of a young boy, or whether it's more significant in your spiritual walk with the Lord, whether it's relational pain or emotional pain, spiritual pain, that there is no growth without pain. And God uses that pain for your good, for his glory. This, and for this reason alone, the Apostle Paul can say, I rejoice in suffering. Because whenever there's pain in my life, whether it's physical or emotional, spiritual or mental, whenever there is pain, discomfort, I know that God is up to something. God is teaching me. God, what are you telling me? What are you teaching me in the midst of this suffering? So because I know, God, you do not waste any suffering, I can declare I can rejoice in suffering. The apostle tells the church that we, we, we ought to rejoice in that suffering. He goes on in that very same verse, verse 24, and he says that my flesh is being filled up with what is still lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Any Christian who reads that line has to read it with a furrowed brow. Paul, what do you mean there's something still lacking in the afflictions of Christ? We are Christians. We, we are born-again believers. We don't believe that there's anything lacking in Jesus. And of course, Paul's not saying that something is deficient in Jesus. No, he's not saying that something is lacking in his atonement or in his work on the cross or in his holiness or in his righteousness. No, Jesus declared it is finished to telestai. He spoke it from the cross of Calvary. What does that mean? It means payment for sin is finished. There's nothing you have to do to upgrade your salvation or enhance it or modify it. No, your salvation that you have from God is complete. It is full and free. It is forever. So there's nothing that's inadequate. There's nothing that's lacking in that atonement of your sin. All of us are like the thief on the cross. We can't lift a hand or a foot unto our own salvation. What we bring to the relationship is our wretchedness. Our sinfulness, that's all we bring. We bring our sinfulness and he gives us the innocence of Christ. For Paul to write that there is something still lacking in the afflictions of Christ, he is not saying that somehow the work of Jesus is inadequate. You say, but what does he mean by that? Let me answer it this way. For a long time, the world has been hating on Jesus when Jesus was here some 2,000 years ago, the world hated him. They punched him. They persecuted him. They spit upon him. They ridiculed him. And now some 2,000 years later, our world is still hating on Jesus. But the issue is they can't hate on him physically because physically Jesus is not here. He's ascended to the heavens. So what does the world do? Well, the world 
they persecute and punch and ridicule and spit upon Jesus' people. The world is not really hating you. They're hating Jesus in you. So what Paul is saying is that these are badges of honor because I am suffering for the name. I am suffering persecution and suffering and, 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 and heartache and disappointment. I am experiencing all these things because I'm identified with Jesus Christ. I am a follower of the Lord Jesus. Have you ever stopped to consider all the suffering that Paul had to endure. There's at least one place in his writings where he itemizes many of those things. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I just want to read this passage for you. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll begin at verse 24. These are the things the apostle went through because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Five times he writes, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in dangers from my countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold. I've been naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. My question before you this morning is if that was your experience, at what point would you have bailed on the Holy One? At what point would you have caved on Christ? At what point when you would have said, enough is enough? Jesus, I love you, but I didn't sign up for all this suffering. At what point would you have bailed on the Blessed One? Shipwrecked? being stoned, being left in the open sea, going without food or water, being hated every place you went, whether it was in the city or in the country, among your own people, among complete strangers? At what point would you have bailed on Jesus? At what point would you have thrown in the towel and said, I'm out, and there's no way I'm going to experience all of this. Jesus, I can't handle all this suffering. And you may sit there today and think to yourself, Pastor, why are you being so negative? Why are you assuming that we would bail on the blessed one? Why are you assuming that we would cave on Christ? It's only seven days after Easter, Pastor. Cut us some slack. I mean, why would you say that, you're, that, that we would bail on this? Because I've had far too many conversations with well-meaning, well-intended, God-fearing Christians. And it goes something like this. Pastor, I just don't believe that Jesus would want me to be this unhappy, this uncomfortable, this stressed in my marriage, on the job, in my relationships, in life. Certainly, God wants me to be happy. Certainly, God wants me to be less stressed. Certainly, God wants me to be comfortable. And brother and sister, everything inside of me rises up and says, God does not care so much about your happiness, but he does care about your holiness. That God is not so much interested in your comfort as much as he's interested in your character. God wants you to be Christ-like. He'll use anything at his disposal, including suffering, to chisel away your sinfulness so that you will resemble more the image of Jesus Christ. God is much more concerned about your holiness 
than your happiness. He wants you to have the obedient life more than he wants you to have the comfortable life. Now, if God gives you a comfortable life, to God be the glory. But God doesn't owe it to anybody to give them comfort. But what he does want from you is obedience more than anything else. God wants you to be holy. God wants you to have character. God wants you to be obedient unto him. This is what God demands from you. So Paul says, I can rejoice in my suffering. I can even rejoice in your suffering because I know God is up to something. Every time there's pain, it reminds me that God is growing you through the discomfort. Every time there's a struggle, God is growing you in the midst of that. So Paul says, I rejoice in the midst of suffering. And God is using my flesh to fill up what is still lacking when it comes to the afflictions of Christ. For as the world hated Jesus, they are hating Jesus in you. And they're hating Jesus in me. When Paul says that we are to rejoice in suffering, you do understand he does not mean that we rejoice in the act of suffering. We rejoice in the Savior of the suffering. It's not that we rejoice in the circumstance itself. We rejoice in the Christ of the circumstance. It's not so much that we rejoice in grieving as much as we rejoice in the God of the grieving. So Paul says because of this, I have been chosen. I have been made a servant, commissioned by God. The word for servant is the word diakonos, from which we get the English word deacon. It's a compound Greek word, diakonos, dia meaning through, konos meaning dirt, so that a servant is a dirty foot person. It's someone who has the imagery of Stooping down and going low to lift somebody else high. It's the picture of Jesus as he bows down and washes the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples. A servant is a dirty foot person. Someone who does not have a glamorous job, but somebody who's used in the kingdom of God. Paul says, I have been commissioned to be a servant, to be a dirty foot person. In the kingdom of God. In so many words, what Paul is saying to me, what Paul is saying to you, he's reminding me that uh, in the kingdom, I'm nobody prominent. I'm really nobody special. If I use this illustration, if I extrapolate it out just a wee bit, I come to the conclusion that really uh, God has called me to be a busboy. That's it, just a busboy. You go to a restaurant. And it's somebody from the kitchen who brings your food to you. It's usually not the waiter or waitress. It's somebody else. That's me. Just the busboy who comes from the kitchen and brings the food on a weekly basis. Sets it in front of you and simply says, bon appetit. Sets it in front of you and says, I want you to feast on this by faith. I didn't, I didn't make the meal. I just went to the kitchen and I got the meal. It's God who crafted the meal each and every Sunday. And then he gives me the meal. And all I do is I take the plate and I bring it out. I'm just the busboy. I just bring it out and I set it before you. And I ask for you just to feast on him by faith. 
And after you're done, sometimes i got to clean up the mess. Sometimes i got to come and get all the dishes and everything, and I've got to bring it, put it all back together. But I'm just the busboy. That's what Paul is talking about. I'm just a servant. I'm just a deacon in the kingdom of God. And I've been commissioned by God to deliver unto you the mystery. The word mystery is used twice in our passage, once in verse 26, the second time in verse 27. Sometimes we think of mystery in our day as something that's eerie and scary and creepy. But in the days of the first century, this word mystery literally meant to reveal what had once been hidden. Paul is also using an analogy of sorts. I told you last week, that there were false teachers that had come into the church. Uh, historians call them Gnostics. They said in order for you to get to God, you had to know some of the emanations that flow from God, some of those teachings, some of those teachers, some of those angels, some of those messengers. They claimed that Jesus was from God, but he's just one of many emanations. He's just one of many mysteries. He's just one of, of many uh, messengers from God. I made mention last Sunday that the Gnostics tried to build the argument that Jesus was one rung in the ladder. And Paul is saying that Jesus is not one rung in the ladder in order for you to get to God. He's the whole cotton-picking ladder. He's the only way that anybody gets to God. That Jesus is the entire way, truth, and the life. What is ironic is that these emanations that came from God, according to the Gnostics, were communicated as mysteries. Paul is piggybacking on their word. He's using their word. You, you can see him as he gives a wink and a nod. You can see him as he gives a little nudge towards the Gnostics because they said, we will give you the great mystery of God. Paul says, no, no, no. I have been commissioned, not as a somebody, but just as a servant. I've been commissioned to give you the mystery of God. That which was hidden now revealed. I have come to give you not just a mystery, but the mystery. I'm here to give you the sacred secret of God. And Paul is about to give the greatest mystery of the entire cosmos. And what I am going to do today is I just want to share with you what Paul shared with the ancient church. I want to tell you about this great mystery. Are you ready for the sacred secret? Are you at the edge of your seat? Are you ready to hear what is the mystery of the cosmos? Are you ready? Not a one of y'all moving. Are you at the edge of your seat? Are you ready, ready to hear what this great sacred secret is? Are you ready? Here it comes. Y'all aren't ready. Are you ready to hear what Paul says is the greatest secret of all the ages? This is the greatest mystery of the cosmos. Here it comes. Are you ready? Here's the ancient mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. From your response, you're not very moved. This is the greatest mystery in all of the ages. Christ in you. You, and he is the hope of glory. This is, this is not just one rung on the ladder. This is the whole ladder. Christ in you. Now, we are seven days removed from the previous passage. 
And that's tragic. Because when this letter was read to the church, the previous passage was not seven days removed. It was only seven seconds removed. What Paul is saying is that this same Christ that he just got done talking about, that Christ can be in you as sinful as you are. And that Christ is the hope of glory. This Christ who is the divine creator. This Christ who is the sufficient savior. This Christ who is the righteous reconciler. This Christ who is the gospel giver. This Christ who is the exact representation of God Almighty. This Christ who is the firstborn among creation. This Christ who is the one who created all things by him and for him. This Christ who made all things visible and invisible. This Christ who made all thrones, rulers, principalities. This Christ who made everything seen and unseen. This Christ who is the first fruit of resurrection. This Christ who gives you salvation in him. This Christ who's accomplished your salvation both now and forevermore. This Christ is available for you. This is the great mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. When salvation invades a person's life, salvation does not make bad people into good people. Salvation makes dead people into living people. We are dead in our sin. And yet, when Christ invades us, when Christ dwells in us, Christ in us, we who are dead in our sin become alive in Jesus Christ. This is the great mystery. See, in ages past, it was predicted that God would dwell among his people. Paul goes one step further. It's not just that God is going to dwell among his people. God will dwell in his people. It's not just Christ above you or Christ beneath you or Christ in front of you or Christ behind you or Christ to the right of you or Christ to the left of you, even though all those statements are true. This is Christ in you. We speak of salvation as God removing our sin from our lives, as God removing our condemnation that we should experience both now and forevermore. And all that is true. But if you see it from the other side, if you see it from the other vantage point, it's not only that salvation is sin coming out of you, salvation is the Savior going into you. Okay, somebody's, somebody's got to get happy today. Somebody's got to get excited. Salvation is not just fire insurance. Salvation is not just the removal of your sin. Salvation is the imputation of the Savior into your life. This is the great mystery. This is what's been hidden for so many ages, but now it's been made revealed at Calvary's cross on the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha in the one and only person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sinner left a a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. That Jesus washed me, and then he took up residence in me. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in chaos. That it is the Messiah in my mess. It is the Savior in a sinner. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the greatest mystery in the cosmos. How is it possible that God can 
tabernacle with us? How is it possible that God can dwell in us? How can God stick out of us? How can God dwell in our hearts? How can God dwell in our mind? How can he dwell in our legs? How can he dwell in our feet? How can he dwell in our hands? How can he dwell in our walk and talk? How can he dwell on our lips and in our lives? How is it possible that the God of the cosmos can come and dwell in sinners like you and a sinner like me, it's only made possible in the accomplished work of Jesus the Christ. And when you come to him in faith and you believe and you trust that he is your savior, he took away your sin, he promised you a home in heaven, and he has secured everything both now and forevermore. At the moment of faith, you go from death unto life. Paul says this is the mystery. This is the great mystery of the cosmos. It's the sacred secret of God Almighty. So then Paul says, in verse 28, him we proclaim. We proclaim him. I know it's a better way to say it in English. We proclaim him. But the emphasis is not on the we. The emphasis is on the him. Him we proclaim. He's why we're here today. He's the one we think about. He's the one we live for. He's the one we talk about. He's the one we worship. Him we proclaim. It was George Whitfield, that great awakening preacher of American history, who said, there may be men who can preach the gospel better than I can, but there is no man who can preach a better gospel. There may be some men who can preach the gospel better than I can, but there is no man who can preach a better gospel. This is the greatest gospel. It is the sweetest gospel. It is the only news for dead sinners to be made alive. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Him we proclaim. Paul says, uh, we admonish you and teach you so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. We admonish you, Paul says. The word admonish is a word that means we warn because there are risks to rejecting Jesus. If you don't receive Jesus, it is risky business. You say, well, it's not that I reject him, I just haven't received him. Friend, if you have not received him, you have rejected him. And to admonish someone is to warn them of the high risk of not receiving Jesus. If a person goes through this life and they do not receive Jesus as Savior and Lord and they die, they go to a justifiable place called hell for all of eternity. Hell is worse than anything we could imagine. We can't laugh about it. We can't joke about it. We cannot make light of it. Hell is a real place. And it's terrible. We would not wish hell even on our worst enemy. We don't want anybody to go there. And the only way you don't justifiably go to hell is by receiving Jesus Christ by faith. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says we admonish. We also teach. If admonishing is warning against the risk, then teaching 
is speaking about the rich reward of receiving Jesus as Christ. There's great reward. If you receive Christ, your sins are forgiven. If you receive Christ, you have peace with God, peace with yourself, peace with fellow man. If you receive Christ, you have purpose in this world. If you receive Christ, you have a home in heaven. If you receive Christ, you have Christ in you, dwelling in you, both now and forevermore. There are great rewards to receiving Christ. Paul says we teach and admonish so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. This is not just something for super saints. He says, I'm not just trying to present 20% of y'all before Christ. He said, I'm trying to present every one of you. I'm trying to present every one of you as perfect before Christ. The word perfect does not mean without error. It's a word that means mature or complete. And certainly, if you are in Christ, you have his righteousness, his innocence as belonging to you so that when the Father looks at you, he sees you as innocent as he sees the perfect Son of God. But when you are presented perfect, it doesn't necessarily mean without error. I mean, can we all give testimony that we've already messed up today? I mean, not a day goes by without, I mean, we just, we just blow it. I mean, we really make some royal mistakes. Not a day goes by that we don't make some mistake. So to be perfect does not mean without error. To be perfect means to be complete in Christ. And he says, I, I want to present everyone perfect in Christ. Verse 29, the very last verse of the passage, says, to this end, I labor. The word labor carries the idea of exhaustion. I, I labor. I, I, uh, I strain for this. It, it takes everything inside of me. I labor for this. It is said that uh, by biographers of Martin Luther that there were many nights where Martin Luther just fell in his bed. Does anybody else resemble that? You get to the end of your day, you're so spent. I mean, everything has been exerted out of you. You get to the end of the day and you just, you just fall into the bed. It was D.L. Moody who penned in his journals. He would pen morning prayers and evening prayers. There were many a time he'd come to his evening prayers and this is what he says, and I quote D.L. Moody. He would say, dear Heavenly Father, I'm tired, amen. <laughs> That's my evening prayer. Is it your evening prayer? I mean, that's, that's how it goes, right? I mean, we get to the end of the day, and we are spent. We have labored. Because the work of this mystery is labor-intensive. He goes on to say, to this end I labor. Struggling. The Greek word for struggling, we get the English word agonize. You feel the strain, don't you? He's saying, I am agonizing. For you. I am agonizing over you. It is, it is taking all the energy out of me. I, I'm, just, I'm just laboring for you. I'm agonizing for you. Friend, let me ask you this question. I know you agonize over some things. I know you agonize over some people. But who do you agonize over? What do you agonize for? Are you agonizing in prayer over the salvation of someone close to you? Are you agonizing over the holiness 
of a spouse, of a son, of a daughter, of a neighbor, of a family member, of a classmate? Do you agonize over longing to see the fruit of righteousness on display in the life of someone close to you? Do you know what it is to agonize? Do you know what it is to be labor intensive in this ministry of the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is Paul. Paul says, to this end I labor. To this end I agonize. I do it with his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Those last couple of phrases, there is a word that jumps off the page that I've never seen before until this past week. I labor and I agonize in his energy, not mine. It's, it's, it's not my struggle. It's not my strength. It's not, it's not my energy. It's not my ability. It's not my might. We, we do this thing in his energy, in his power. We, we do this thing of, of telling the sacred secret. We do this thing of making known the mystery of the cosmos. We do this on borrowed power. It is not our power. It's his power. It's not our strength. It's his strength. It's not our fortitude. It's his fortitude. It's not our ability. It's his ability. We work on borrowed power. The same power that calmed the raging seas works in you. The same power that healed the uh, one who was deaf works in you. The same power that opened up blind eyes works in you. The same power that raised Lazarus from the dead works in you. The same power that said to Jairus' daughter, Talitha Kaum, little girl get up, and she got up, works in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead works in you because that power is alive in you. Here's the mystery of the cosmos. It's the sacred secret of the Savior. It is Here it is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The same power that's in Christ is the same power that's in you as Christ is in you. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. To him be glory and honor in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. Amen. Now to him who is able, if he's able to put Christ in you, he's able to handle anything that you have. If he's able to put the perfect Savior in sinful humanity so that we are innocent in his sight both now and forevermore. If he can do that, he can do anything. This is the sacred secret. This is so good, we can't keep quiet about it. This is so good that we've got to tell somebody. This is the sacred secret of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This morning, if you have never received the hope of glory in salvation in Jesus Christ, then I, I call you to faith today. We're going to sing a song 
And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, I encourage you to come take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I need that Jesus in my life. Maybe you are a Christian. I want you to know the altar's open because some of you need to do some labor-intensive work. You need to come in prayer. And you, maybe you need to agonize over a loved one who's lost. Maybe somebody's here you need to join the church. God is calling someone uh, into full-time service, full-time ministry. Whatever the Lord is calling you to do, I want you to do it today. But regardless, when you walk out of here, you've been told a secret that is so good, you can't keep quiet about it. You've been told a secret that you can't be silent. It's the great mystery of the cosmos. God has paved the way so that Christ can dwell in you, and he is the hope of glory. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Father, may you work. Um, May we respond in obedience. Lord, thank you for uh, calling us to uh, faith in you and raising us from the dead. And Father, whatever you're doing in this midst, in this moment, I pray you'll help us to respond in obedience to you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.